Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you and study your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at it. Show, it, show us what you would want us to see from this. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 37. We're continuing with where Hezekiah prays before God to ask for deliverance from Sennacherib's army outside. And he actually gives a good prayer because he says, you know, it, you know help deliver us our God. And we see Isaiah telling him God's answer. And that would start way back in chapter 6. and uh, Verse 6, excuse me. And we're going to start at verse 21 where we left off. So, then said Isaiah, son of Amos, sent, sent unto Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Whereas you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word the Lord hath spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, hath despised you and have laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem hath shaken her head at you. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And and against whom have you exalted your voice and lifted up your eyes on high, even against the Holy One of Israel? By your servants have you reproached the Lord and have said, By the multitude of my chariots am I come up to the height of the mountain, to the sides of Lebanon. I will cut down the tall cedars thereof and, and the choice fir trees thereof, and I will enter into the height of his border and the forest of his Carmel. I have... I have dug and drunk water, and from the sole of my feet have I dried up all the rivers of the besieged places. Have you not heard long ago that I have done it, and of ancient times that I have formed it? Now, I, have, I brought, now have I brought it to pass that you should be to lay waste defense cities into the ruinous heaps. Therefore your inhabitants shall were of small power, they were dismayed and confounded, they were as the grass of the field, and as the green herb and the grass on the housetops, and as the corn blasted before it was full grown. Now I know your abode, and your going out, and your coming in, and, the ra and they rage against me. Because they rage against me, and, and you tr tumult is come up into my ears, therefore will I put my hook in your nose, and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. And this shall, let's stop there, 29. <laughs> so God comes and he speaks. Remember, Jerusalem is besieged. It is surrounded. And we read in places that they're starving to death. They've been under siege for a long time. Uh, we're told that the horse's head cost a shekel and people were buying pigeon dung for an extreme amount of money, they were really hungry. And they don't know what's going on. They don't know how it's going to be saved. And Hezekiah takes the charges that Shennacherib sends, and he goes before God. And the message he gets is, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Wherefore you have prayed unto me against Shennacherib, king of Assyria. God is praising him. You have done what you're supposed to do. And this is something that I think we need to be so careful as Christians because too often prayer is the last thing we do. And here Hezekiah took him a while. The city's been besieged for a while. But he finally goes to God and prays. 
And too often, we, you know, when we, we even have it, I've tried everything else, I guess I'll pray type of sentence that we use. And we need to learn to go to God first. That doesn't mean we're not going to do anything to, to work on fixing our problem, but we need to go to God and listen. God may just say, be still. Be still and see me work. Or he may say, get moving and get this job done. You know, we don't know what he's going to say, but most of the time it's going to be, watch me work. Watch what I'm going to do to deliver you. Hezekiah cannot beat Shennacherib on his own. Shennacherib has defeated every place he's gone, gone and he's, he represents the kingdom of Assyria and they are conquering everywhere they go. They're not, they haven't been defeated. He's got Jerusalem in his sights. He's got it surrounded and being bold and being brass. And remember when we, in the previous chapter, we read how he's saying, you know, what, what other gods have saved their gods? You know, are you going to trust in your God? Don't let Hezekiah trick you and deceive you. Don't let this Isaiah guy deceive you that your God's going to deliver you because we have defeated every God out there because our God is stronger. And they were absolutely sure they were going to win. And in the flesh, they were going to win. 185,000 plus men, because 185,000 are going to die. And I don't know if it's his entire army, but he may have left with some. Men surrounding Jerusalem in siege. There was no way they were going to win. And everywhere else in Jerusalem, or Judea has been defeated. And just Jerusalem is standing. And it says here, this is the word of, Lord, of the Lord has spoken against him. Against who? Sennacherib. So he says, and this is kind of funny when you look at it. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, hath despised you. Right? He's got them in the palm of his hand as far as he's concerned. He's going to conquer them. And God says, hey, Jerusalem despises you. They're not listening to you. They're, they're not even taking the time to deem to answer you. And sometimes that's what we need to do to the enemy is quit responding to the enemy. Just be silent and let God be our defense. And I know it's true for me. Every time I open my mouth to try to defend myself, it gets worse. I have learned the hard way. Let God be my defender. And he says here, the virgin, the daughter of Zion, who didn't deserve to be called a virgin, has despised you and laughed you to scorn. <laughs> The, the, the daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head at you. In other words, in disbelief. Who is this person who's standing outside our gates thinking they can beat and defeat our God? Now that wasn't the attitude before Hezekiah was praying. They're shaking in their boots and, and God is saying, you're going to see. You're going to see and you're going to regret having been afraid. And this is what ends up happening so often. When we walk with God, we let him defend us. And we look at this, and how many times have I said, you know, how do we get over something and get victory over it? We surrender. Over and over in my lifetime, I've taken forever to surrender. And then when I finally surrender, it's like, why did I wait so long? It was so easy just to surrender and go kicking myself because just surrendering to God brought victory. Or at least peace. At the very least, peace. And here God is saying, Hezekiah surrendered to me. You guys are going to be shaking your head at the enemy. You're going to see that the enemy was nothing. Our enemy is Satan. And God says he's like a roaring lion, roaring about seeking whom he may devour. 
And we know that it's even worse. He's a leashed roaring lion. He does not have free will. He does not have freedom to do whatever he wants. He has to ask God for permission to do anything. And we fear him all the time. In Revelation, it's, it tells us that we're going to look upon him and say, is this the one that made the nations tremble? We're going to see Satan going, that's, that's the one? That's the one that made us all afraid all the time? Because we're going to see him as he really is, not as the facade that he puts on. And he puts on this facade that he is all great and wonderful and powerful and has all kinds of freedom and authority and he encourages that view of him but he is just a puppet god uses him to test we'll, we'll see him it says we will we will say is this the one that made the nations tremble this, this is him and it, and it is a the way it's spoken it is a derision is this the one this this is the one that made me tremble you get i almost picture the wizard of oz in the movie when they open up the thing and they go don't, don't mind that guy behind the booth he's nothing okay that's kind of what satan has done to us he's behind the curtains with all this flim flam and and production and great words and he is nothing nothing to be feared and yet so many times we fear him because we forget who we serve. We forget that we serve the God of the universe and he is going to give us the strength. He's going to give us the victory when we hide in him. And he controls all that Satan can do. And even when he gives Satan a test, he still puts limits on Satan. Just like he did with Job. Okay, you can go touch Job, but you can't touch him. You can take all of his possessions, but you can't touch him. Okay, you can touch Job, but you can't take his life. And he just increases it. And sometimes God may say, okay, you can take their life and they're going to they're still celebrate and serve me and be a martyr. And he gets to take a life. And that just get, means we graduate to heaven if we're his children. But if he had absolute, total run of this world, he would kill everybody. He hates humanity. He wants humanity dead. Because he wants them to be with him in hell. Not that he's going to build a kingdom, but... Misery loves company is the adage, and he's just trying to get as many people to come with him as possible so at least he can know that he hurt God. Does he really know that he is going to lose? Well, he won't admit it. That's a good question. And probably he won't admit it. He knows that God says he's going to lose. He's going to be punished. But if you've ever dealt with somebody who has nothing to lose, whose back is against the, against the wall, and they're going to they feel they're going to die anyway they are deadly they are vicious and they might even and they might even win because of they have nothing to lose and they're willing to go out totally fighting and that's where satan is at he knows he's going to lose he knows god says he's going to lose but he's trying everything in his power to prove that god is not omniscient if somehow he can prove that god doesn't know everything isn't all powerful then he can say see god i might win that is why he has tried to kill Israel so many times. He's tried over and over to destroy the Jewish people because in the Old Testament, if he could kill the Jewish people, the Messiah would not be born. And God would have been a liar. He tried to kill Jesus right after he was born as a baby. Didn't, wasn't successful. He's tried to kill the Jews ever since. Why? Because they're part of the end times. If he can destroy the Jews so that there's no Jew around for the, for the tribulation period and for the millennial kingdom, he can prove, to, prove that God doesn't know, and that's what he's trying to do. 
So does he know? He knows what God has said. Is he accepting what God has said? No. no. He's fighting tooth and nail to try to prove God doesn't know. And he knows better. Okay? He has walked with God in heaven. He knows most, you know, he knows things from the heavenly point of view. He probably did not know what was happening when Jesus died paying, paying for the debts of the world that would cover their sin. Because that was outside of his fathom and it was decided before the foundations of the world, before anything was created. So he did not know the whole plan of God when he put Jesus to death. Otherwise, he wouldn't have crucified him. Because he played into God's hand by crucifying Jesus. Having Jesus crucified, he thinks he had victory. I killed God. And it was God saying, I, was, I had this planned all along, Satan. You, you did not win. And he's thinking, I, I got it. I, I managed to kill God. He knew who Jesus was. I killed him. He's dead. Whoops, he resurrected. Whoops, that was his plan all along. To let me kill him. So he thought he had victory, and yet God knew exactly what it was. And this is what we have to understand. We fight a defeated foe, so we have nothing to fight for. All we do is, you know, and I say this over time, when Satan knocks on our door, if we were to get into the habit of sending Jesus to answer the door, we'd have no problems whatsoever. Except for our own flesh, but we'd have no problems with Satan because as soon as Jesus opened the door, Satan would say, see you later, you're not the one I wanted to see. You know, because he's not going to go, can I see the man in the house or the woman in the house? Jesus would go, no, you'll get to see me. <laughs> you, know, you know, you get to see me, they sent me to the door to talk to you, so what do you want? Go away. <laughs> but how often do we go to the door? And we try to battle with him. Yeah, we let him in. And we let him, we let him in. So here we're seeing him say, my, my people are laughing at you, Satan. You know, Shennacherib, Satan, they're laughing at you. You're, you're defeated. I've said you're defeated, and they're laughing. They're, they're, they're having great scorn over you as they listen to you speak blasphemous words that cannot come true. And this is true of when we look at Satan. He speaks great blasphemies. He attacks God with every word that he says. He lies. He, he, Jesus said that every word he speaks is a lie and there is no truth in him. All right? When he speaks a lie, he's speaking his native tongue. So when, whenever you hear the voice of Satan, you know that he's lying. All right? He's always telling a falsehood. So he never says the truth. Doesn't say the truth. Now, he may crouch it in things that sound good. He skirts around it, but he never speaks the truth. He's lying. He tells us all the time, you are worthless. God will never accept you. You can't come before God because you don't have any value. And this is where we need to know how God sees us. So that when we get these thoughts bombarding our head, we're going to say, no, that's not right. Jesus died for me. I have great value. I'm the bride of Christ. I'm clothed in his righteousness. I'm a child of God. I'm adopted. I'm an heir of salvation. I'm an heir of all, all that there is. And he loves me. And get away from this negative thinking of, I'm terrible, I'm miserable. Because in the flesh, we are terrible and miserable. But that's not what God says about us. It's a fact. Actually, I like to, Satan will feed us with a bunch of facts. We are terrible, we are miserable, but he forgets the truth. I am covered by the blood of Christ and, I, and his righteousness is covering me because I'm his child. That's the truth. The fact is I'm a miserable, terrible person. But the truth is I am perfect in Christ because of his righteousness and his, and his glory. 
So we need to start living in the truth, not the facts that we know about ourselves and that Satan wants to throw at us. I have to remember what you said, like, when I got to heaven, you were the one that I was trying to follow sometimes. But he's going to, when, he, when we see him in heaven, he's going to appear as the 98-pound weakling with no, nothing for us to fear. This is what we were afraid of? This? This weak being that has no power, that's being forced to bow before God when he didn't want to? At the white throne judgment, everybody's going to bow before God. And they're not going to want to, but they're going to. Because God's going to say, you will recognize me. Every person will call him Lord before they're cast into hell. Even though they're not going to say it with a great tone like we do. We gratefully say, oh, Lord, thank you. I want to be. They're going to be, oh, yes, you're Lord. <laughs> and it's going to come very grudgingly because they're going to see him for his power that he has. And they might even say, you are Lord. But it's too late to get them to heaven with that comment. And it says here in verse 23, Whom have you reproached and blasphemed against? Whom have you exalted your voice and lifted up your eyes on high, even against the Holy One of Israel? By your servants have you reproached the Lord and have said, By the multitude of chariots I have come up to the height of the mountain and to the sides of Lebanon. I will cut down the tall cedars thereof and the choice fir trees thereof, and I will enter into the height of his border and into the forest of Carmel. Oh, the boasting. <laughs> Look what I have done. Satan's great temptation in Ezekiel was, I will ascend. I will be like the Most High. I will climb. Satan has this idea that he is. And one of the places we are always in trouble with is when we find ourselves using the word I a lot. Look what I have done. Look what I have accomplished. Look where I am going. Look at what I have, have managed to do for God. If we're finding ourselves saying the I word a lot, we're in trouble. It's one thing, I mean, we can't eliminate the I word completely out of our language, but we need to be very careful that we understand any good thing that happens to us is because of God. God has given us the strength. God has given us the talents. God has given us the victories. It is by God that any good thing happens. And if I'm not acknowledging that, I'm going to have trouble. I'm going to have great trouble in my life when I think it's me. And then Satan can really have a field day because when I think it's me and I have a bad day, now all of a sudden he's got all kinds of grounds. See, you, I, knew, I knew you weren't any good. And Satan loves to do this. He comes at you when you're walking with God real strong. You go, well, you can go out and sin. It's really not that big a deal. If you do, you can just confess and, and be done with it. And sometimes we are stupid enough to listen and say, yeah, I guess that's right. I can, I can repent. I just, I'm just going to do it. And we're not going through that conscious thought usually, but we go out thinking, okay, yeah, I'm con And then as soon as we do it, Satan hits us with the sledgehammers now and saying, oh, what a terrible person. What kind of a Christian are you? How could you have done that? No, a real Christian would never have done that. God will never forgive you because of all this stuff that you've done. And he gets us to convince that we can be a hypocrite, and then he really hammers us for being a hypocrite. This is Satan's attack, and it has not changed ever. And it hasn't changed in our lifetime. He, and it's not, it's not going to change. He is not doing anything new. Each time a new religion comes out, it's just an old one recycled with new words and new, new, new twist to it. But it's still the same old religion. 
All of our New Age mysticism is Middle Eastern uh, religious stuff. And before that, it was part of the Gnosticism. And before that, it was part of the idol worships that were going on. It just gets recycled. He puts new names on it. He renames the gods and recycles it with somebody new coming up with the idea. And when you study it, you're going, oh, oh, okay, that's just like this. It's just like this. Where it has pieces from two or three things. And we need to be very careful to know our enemy and know that he lies. And just put our trust in God. Sennacherib's being bold. And remember, that was the, the claim from his, his, his uh, mouthpiece. You know, hey, you know, no other God has protected, your, protected their nation. Your God's not going to be any different than, than those other gods. And remember, his very first statement was, you know, sir, you know, people, Hezekiah destroyed your altars and destroyed your, your, your uh, uh, idols so that you have to worship in Jerusalem. You know, he's really not on the God's side that he says he is because he's destroyed all those other, other altars. Little did he know that God said, destroy all those other altars because I want them worshiping me and only me. But because he did not understand what was going on and how God was worshiped, he thought that people would be mad at Hezekiah. You know, it wasn't that Hezekiah was purifying the, the Jewish way of thought. He's thinking, oh, you know, he's being, he's being pretty obnoxious making people come to Jerusalem. Controlling. Controlling. He's trying to make you guys do, do things and trying to, you know, control you so that you can't do it. Then he goes, I have dug and drunk water with the soles of my feet. Have I dried up the rivers of the besieged places? He's really being, being bold. He says, I have blocked off rivers, I have built dams, I have dried up waters, I have crossed waters, I have drunk all the water that I want. And he says, nothing stops me. And what he's saying here literally is, no natural defenses have even stopped me. This guy's being pretty bold. And he's playing right into it. He's, he's playing, maybe he's even kind of coming up with a you know, play on God having dried up the Red Sea and dried up the Jordan. I have a feeling he may be trying to play that, you know, hey, these rivers don't even stop me. You know, I know that your God, supposedly, a couple of hundred years ago, your God dried up these things. Natural, natural rivers and everything aren't stopping me and my God from coming after you. Oh, his arrogance. <laughs> huh, did I skip a verse? Yes. That he brought his own, his, ar his own armies to the mountains. I think I did skip it, didn't I? Yeah. Uh, Sennacherib saying, I have a mighty army <laughs> in that section. What, what's the forest of Carmel? Uh, Carmel was a very forested land. It was on the northwest side of Israel and on the southwest side of Assyria. Very tall mountain. Uh, it's the same place where uh, Elijah is going to have the battle with the, the prophets of Baal, Mount Carmel. It's a very lush yeah. place, very forested. And he's saying, that doesn't... That, that doesn't stop me. And remember, he knows, he knows some of their history. He knows that Car Mount Carmel has been a battle between God. He understands that it's a choice place for Israel. And he says, that didn't stop me. The force of Lebanon didn't stop me. My, my chariots go where I tell them. My army goes where I tell them. And, and then he goes, this whole thing about water. He goes, in other words, he's saying, nature doesn't stop me. And he's really claiming, almost he's saying, I'm God. Or at least I serve a God that is very strong and nothing is stopping me. And like I say, I think he's playing also on the history of Israel. 
And he probably thinks it's superstitious and, and myth, but he's playing on this idea that the, the Jordan has been dried up and the Red Sea has been dried up. And he's saying, you guys think you're special? None of these rivers have stopped me. I've blocked, I have blocked them up. Not God had blocked them up, but he says, I have blocked them up. I have crossed them. Nothing, nothing stops me. He is being arrogant, and God is re repeating his words at this point. All right, God is repeating Sennacherib's words and kind of changing them a little bit. Verse 26 says, Have you not heard long ago how I have done it, and of ancient times how I have formed it? And now I have brought it to pass, and that you should be, should be to lay waste defense cities and two ruinous heaps. So God says, this was all my plan. I formed the world. I did just what you say you're, you're doing. And by, this, by, by the way, I'm the one that lets you have victory. God is telling them, you know, I let Sennacherib have victory. And this is something we must always keep in mind. God already knows what's going to happen. He allows it. Even when it seems terrible. When Nero burned Rome down to the ground and blamed the Christians, God knew that he was going to do that. He knew that Nero would kill Paul and Peter and use them as the leaders and blame them. God knew that it was going to happen. And it didn't stop Christianity from flourishing. We need to understand no matter what seems to be happening to us and that we think is bad, God's got a reason. And we need to really begin to contemplate when things seem bad, God's got a plan. And we see this in various movies that we've watched. We've seen this in our own life. When bad things seem to happen to us, given enough time, God shows us why it's good. Now, Fox's Book of Martyrs has all these people who die, and yet their names are being lifted up, and people got saved because of their bold stance when they went to, the, went to their death. Singing, praising God, worshiping God, and people saw that and going, Basically, they're going, these people are weird, but I'm kind of interested in what, what makes them different. How can, they, how can they go to their death joyfully? Because they're looking at, I don't have anything in my life that I would die for. Very few people have anything in their life that they're willing to die for, unless they're believing some lie. Muslims will die for the lie that they're going to, if they die a suicidal death, taking, taking uh, the enemies of Allah out, that they will go to heaven. And that's their guaranteed way to go to heaven. Well, they don't do it joyfully. They just do it because, hey, I'm going to get to go to heaven. But it's not with joy. They're not going to be singing and praising their God. They're just like, okay, you know, Allah, Allah is great, Allah is good, I'm going to die, you know. And they're doing it for all the wrong reasons. We as Christians go, God, if this is your choice, I'm going to, I'm going to meet you in heaven. And that's the good news for us. When we truly understand that if we die, for us as a Christian, dying is a great thing. All right? We get to step into the presence of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The moment I step out of this body, I'm with God. Now, the rest of the world, gonna, you know, family and friends will be sad that I'm gone. I'm not sad. You won't be sad either when you step out of your body. You're going to behold... You're going to behold the one who gave himself for you and has loved you and kept you for so long and you're going to just melt <laughs> in his presence. Uh, and down here, you know, 
and people will go, well, I know grandma and grandpa or mom and dad or great grandma and great grandma or grandpa are watching over me. I don't think so. Their eyes are on Jesus. If, if it is true that, the, that you're met by family and friends at the, as you come in, it would be Jesus going, oh, by the way, you need to go to the gate and meet, meet your grandson. He's come, you know, a granddaughter. They're coming in today. If it happens, if that is a true way thing that happens, he's going to remind you to go. By the way, you need to get over there to the gate today. And I don't know that it's true or not. I just know that that is the tradition. We will meet our loved ones. I don't think we meet them at the gate, but we will meet them in heaven. We will know who they are. We will know, we will know the, our friends, and we will know them instinctively because of the spirit connection to them. Because who knows what they look like? Uh, and I don't know what anybody's going to look like because which body do I want to have when I get to heaven? It's not this fat body that I have now. I really would like to have the body back when I was 22, 23 years old, when I was in shape. Well, I'm going to say, if I have a physical body, I want that one. I'm sure God has a better body in place for me. But if I was to pick a body that I have had during this lifetime, it would be back then. When I, when I was in shape and I had, and, uh, could run, run 5, 10 miles a day and no problems and I was healthy. I don't want this body. And yet, how many people know me only in this body? And how many people would recognize me if they saw that, that slim, trim, 190-pound, 6-foot-tall beanpole? <laughs> I think our, our spirits know. Our spirits know, and that's what I'm saying. Yeah. And what will we have? I don't know. I think it's going to be greater than anything we had on this world. Yeah. We can't imagine what it's going to be. We can't even fathom what a perfect body is going to be like. And we will know each other because we will know our spirits. We will know each other. We will know one another and probably know everybody in the family, which is millions of people. Because it's not talking just about our little family. I'm talking about the entire family of God. We will know them. How do we know that? Peter and John uh, and were on the Mount of Transfiguration and they saw Moses and Elijah and knew Moses and Elijah and there were no pictures of Moses and Elijah for them to be able to say, hey, this is Moses and Elijah. They knew from the spiritual point of view what was going on because of where they were at at the time. They got to see Jesus glorified. They got to see the glorified body of Moses and Elijah and had to have had some form of glorified body while they were there, otherwise they wouldn't have seen anything. The light would have been too bright. It would have been too intense. And yet they were in their flesh. <laughs> I, I, I found it so funny because it says, Peter, because he didn't know what to say, said, shall we make tabernacles for you? You know, Peter, Peter was very good at just, he had to say something. Let me just say something. I, don't, I have nothing to say, but I'm just going to say something. And he always had foot and mouth disease. <laughs> Yeah, I've done it too many times, unfortunately. Verse 30, uh, 27, Therefore their inhabitants were of small power and were dismayed and confounded. They were as grass of the field and as green herbs in the, as the grass on the housetops and corn blasted before it has grown up. And God says you're basically like grass in the heat of the day. And we in the Mojave County Desert can really understand this. When we start getting everything dry and the sun comes up, it might be really green after the rain, and that green does not usually stay very long before everything is dried up, withered away, and gone. This is the picture he's saying. 
Sennacherib, you think you're something, you've got green grass, you're sprouting up, just wait till the sun comes up. And by the way, I'm the sun. <laughs> I am going to dry you up, you're going to wither away. And it talks about grass on the housetops. In that area, housetops were flat, usually made out of a mud or a clay. And you could walk on them, you know, and, and sun yourself on them. Baths were usually taken up on the roof. But they were made out of mud and clay. And hard mud and clay will grow weeds given a, given a crack or a little bit of moisture, and they will grow weeds. And it says, you're going to be like that, that little weed that grows up in the asphalt, that grows up on the, on the hard clay. As soon as the sun comes up, it's gone. And this is what God is saying about Shenekerib. You know, Hezekiah just... Chill out. You know, chill out. You know, you're going to be scorning them. They are the grass that withers away. You, you think there's something. They think there's something. They're not. I've got a victory for you. And it is wonderful that God will always give us victory. Always. Even though it seems like we're not getting victory, we will get victory in the long run. Even when we are messing up, doing everything wrong, we will have consequences and punishment for it, but in the long run, God will turn it for good and give us victory out of it. He gives us the victory that is what we're looking for. And his victory, we don't know what it may look like half the time. Like I say, for us as a Christian, to die is great. The world looks at it, well, what a terrible thing, they died. God says, no, I am going to get the glory. When Elliot and his friends died at the hands of the Inca Indians, Inca, whatever Indian, huh? A cow was, I knew Inca wasn't right. Yeah. Uh, you know, it looked like a terrible defeat. God had, they had lost four missionaries. Then the next thing you know, the Indians are coming to see their families and bringing them back so they can hear the gospel message because they watched how these guys died. They couldn't believe how they died. They did not defend themselves. They did not understand that. The Romans did not understand the first century church who would not defend themselves against being killed. And it changed history. Because when we let God be our defense, people don't know what to do with that. Because that's not how they would act. I've been falsely accused. I'm going to fight tooth and nail to prove my, prove my innocence. Even if I'm not falsely accused, I'm going to fight tooth and nail to try to prove my innocence. And when Christians just say, okay, God, you're my defender, they look at us as if we're crazy. And yet, conviction comes into their heart because they know what they're doing is wrong. They know that we're different. They know that something is different. And the people who know us go, yeah, I think they're crazy. I don't understand them at all. But they've got something they're willing to give their life for. And that's important. Important that we have something that we will give our life for willingly because of the rewards that come afterwards. And we need to be in that place where we're going to say, God, I just put my trust in you. And the world looks at us and says, you guys are nuts, you're crazy, I don't understand you. And we go, yes, we are, thank you. you know, we follow a different leader. This home is not our home. I'm ready to go home anytime God wants me to go home. And I do not have a reputation on this world to have to care about. Now, I don't want that taken too far, but, you know, my job is not to keep my reputation on this world. My job is to live for God. And that might mean that I lose my reputation in the process. But this is where we come down to it. 
I am not trying to maintain my reputation. That doesn't mean I go out and be as bad as I can because I have no reputation to keep. But as if I'm living for God and people are saying that's bad, it doesn't matter because I'm living for God. I'm doing what he wants me to do and what the people think of me is not important because it's what God thinks of me. Jesus says, don't fear the, the one who can take your life. Fear the one that holds eternity, that, can, that holds our soul in his hand. Where does our soul spend eternity? Is more important than what my body, what happens to my body. Saul says, "I bear the." Uh, Paul said, "I bear the marks of the of Jesus on my body." Why? Because he'd been beaten everywhere he went. He'd been scourged. He'd been stoned. He'd been uh, all these problems. And he says, "You know, he could probably point. See this scar? I got this one in, in Ephesus. See these scars up here? I got them in Corinth. See these scars? All of these scars are because I serve Jesus. They're not because I deserve it, but because I serve Jesus." And we have been so fortunate that we don't have to pay with that kind of payment yet. There's coming a time when Christians will pay with their lives, and in the rest of the world, it does happen a lot. Christians pay with their life a lot around the rest of the world. It's coming to America. And I don't know, I don't know if it's going to be tomorrow or a century from now or, or a decade from now, but it is coming to America eventually. They're already already oppression. We haven't been physically attacked yet, but there is already the oppression that's coming our way. And we're hearing everybody gripe about the oppression because we're not used to it. But it's coming. We need to prepare. I think it's it's sooner than a century, definitely sooner than a century, and probably less than a, a decade, but we need to prepare. We need to prepare our hearts. The good news from all of this tribulation and pressure are the people who are not Christians are falling away. There's becoming a very light group of people that are trusting in God. Then there's a whole other group that really aren't trusting in God. They may still go to church. They may go to Christian churches, so-called Christian churches, but those are the churches that don't believe the Bible, don't believe in Jesus, don't believe in anything but a nice, let's have fun together, let's have a good time. And there's a huge gap between the two starting. And the light is becoming lighter and the dark is becoming darker. And we're going to see a greater and greater flow of that. And because of the churches that are denying Jesus, denying the word, it's making life more and more difficult for those churches that are honoring God and keeping, keeping Jesus because people could, well, you know, that group over there doesn't believe the way you do. They're accepting homosexuality, they're accepting fornication, they're accepting that, you know, uh, evolution, they're accepting, you know, abortion, they're accepting all this other stuff. What's wrong with you? And they're going to use that group of false believers to criticize those of us who are holding on to the word of God. But that's okay. If that's what's going to happen, I will hold on to the word of God and I will be taking my punishment for holding on to the word of God. Because in the long run, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust God and I'm not going to deny him. And if it costs me my life, it costs me my life. If it costs me my freedom, it costs me my freedom. I've said all along, I have always believed that I'm going to prison for my, for my beliefs. Probably not the state prison. It'll probably be a federal prison, uh, more like a concentration camp. But I've always believed that I'm going to go into prison because of being a Christian, because I do not intend to deny Jesus. Oh, believe me, of course, if you're in a concentration with other Christians, there won't be a whole lot of people other than the guards to preach to. But 
I'll, I'll preach to the guards. I'll, te I'll teach. I'll continue teaching. If I go to a regular prison, I'll continue teaching. And I've always believed that's going to be true, and I never thought I'd be going to some place, you know, foreign country to be put behind bars, you know, for violating their laws. I've always thought it would be in America. And believe me, in the 80s and 90s when I first thought this, there was no way it was ever going to happen. It made no sense to even think that way. Now I'm starting to see that it could very easily happen. Very easily happen that Christians could be put behind bars in America. Very easily. Uh, all right, verse 28. But I know your abode, and you're going out, and you're coming in, and your rage against me. And this is kind of interesting because God says, I know. I was there. I saw. I heard. I'm omniscient, God says. I know everything. God knows everything that people say, everything they do, all the plans they have of hurting us, all the plans that we have of trying to defend ourselves. He knows everything. He knows it before we even are going to do it because he sees the future as if, as if it's the past. And he says, Shennacherib, I know what you've done. I know how, how, where you live. I know what, you're, what you've yelled and what you've done and what you think. And this, is gonna, this will shock him if he was to really think about it. He's not going to believe it, but it's going to be that God says, I know. Because your rage against me and your tumult is come up into my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back the way in which you came. This hook in the nose literally was the way they punished the king usually. They would take the king, they'd put a ring in his nose, and they would hook it to a chain and make him walk behind a horse. And if he fell down, they would drag him until that ring was pulled out of his nose. And then they would put bridles in them and, and direct them and yank them just as they would a horse. All right? And God says, you know, I'm the one in control here. I'm the one that's going to control you. And I'm, by the way, Shennacherib, I'm taking you back home. You think you're something? I'm taking you back home. And you're not going to have any, any way to do it. And then he comes back in verse 30 back to Hezekiah. And this shall be a sign to you, Hezekiah. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself. In the second year, that which springs up the same. And in the third year, sow you and reap and plant vineyards and eat fruit thereof. God says, for the next two years, Hezekiah, I'm going to provide for you. You're not going to have to sow seed. You're not going to have to harvest. You're not going to plant anything. I am going to provide for you. What is he hearkening back to? All the way back to when Israel came into the promised land and said, for the first three year, two years, you're not planting, you're not harvesting. I will provide for you from the land itself. I will do this. And then you will start harvesting, harvesting your, your trees and your fruit and your gardens. So Hezekiah, because he knows God, he knows God's word, he knows that God is referring back to the conquest of Canaan. And God kept his word there so he can say, okay, God, you're honest. You're going to provide for us. You're going to provide for us, God. We don't have to worry about it. Remember, everything's been destroyed. There is no fields for this year because they have been destroyed by Sennacherib. He has surrounded Jerusalem. They are worried about how are they going to eat? Where are they going to get food? And God says, don't worry about it. I'll provide for you. How many times do we worry about 
Where are our next meals coming from? Where are the bills coming from? How are we going to get by? Why? Because somehow we think it's all our doing. God, if I don't provide for my family, we, it's not going to happen. And again, I'm not advocating that we just sit back and do nothing. But God says, because here God's saying, I'm going to provide. You're going to have to go out and pick the stuff. But you're not planting your fields. You're not, you're not putting the, the fertilizer down. All I'm doing is growing the field, and you're going to have to go out and get, get the stuff. But I'm providing. I love watching God provide. It is a lot of fun watching God provide in, in my life. And go, wow, God, you managed to pay that bill? I wasn't sure how that bill was going to be paid. God, you did that? You did that? Wow, it was so wonderful. And we get so much, especially here in America, where all of our needs are provided for by decent incomes, even though people say we don't get paid enough. We get decent incomes. We have a, house, a roof over our head. We have, usually have power and utilities on. There's food on our tables for the most part. Most Americans eat three times a day, and even if they don't, they eat twice a day. Much of the world eats one time a day if they're lucky. If they're lucky. Yeah, and it'll be a scoop of rice with maybe a sliver of meat if they're really fortunate. And we turn up our nose to having to eat macaroni and cheese or, or a plate of spaghetti or something, you know, because, oh, gee, this is, this is poor people's food. And God is saying, I've got you provided for. And we need to understand he's providing for us. And in America, because that's our standard, eat three times a day, God's going to provide three meals a day. He always has for me. Tell that kid here when they had that manna, they were complaining they wanted They didn't like manna. God, why, why are you giving us all this miserable, terrible manna, you know? You, you provided food from the sky for us every morning. I'm sick of this. Uh, it only kept them healthy, no swollen feet, kept them on their feet for, for 40 years in the wilderness. And it was healthy. Nobody was sick for 40 years. You know, that's pretty healthy food. The, the perfect food to keep you healthy and everybody's complaining about it. No, no swollen feet, no nothing. So, and it says, the remnant that are escaped out of the house of Judah shall ta again take root downward and bear fruit upward. He says, you're going to grow, you're going to prosper. You know, you're going to take root. You're going to, I've given you back your land and you're going to populate it and you're going to prosper. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they shall escape not, escape out of Mount Zion, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he hath not come into this city, he shall not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow, nor come before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it. So God tells Israel, you're going to go out in victory as a remnant. And by the way, Shennacherib's not even going to send an arrow into the city. He surrounded it. He's besieged it. He has not shot an arrow in it. He has not cast uh, ladders against it. He's just surrounded. And God says, by the way, Shennacherib, you think you're everything, but you're not even going to touch my city. Only God can say that. You know, he's not even going to shoot an arrow. Now, Shennacherib could have, could have easily fixed that. He could have just shot an arrow just for the sake of shooting it in there. And God says, no, you're not even going to get that far. You're not going to touch my city. You're not going to shoot an arrow in. You're not going to cast up ladders. You're not going to cast up towers. You're not going to throw a rock into the city. You are not attacking my city. Quite a boast. And Shurekhanev's not going to understand. Hezekiah's going, okay, God, God thank you. Thank you. <laughs> not even an arrow into our city. And 
Then he goes on this, and by the way, he that comes, and by the way that he came by, the same way shall he return, and he shall not come into the city, says the Lord. So he says, he came up the, the highway, he's going back the highway. He's not, he's not coming back. For I will defend the city and save it for my own sake and for my ser servant David's sake. God says, I am defending the city, not because you guys deserve it, but because it's my city and because I promised David that I would protect. You know, Hezekiah was a pretty good king. But God's going to say, it's not even you, Hezekiah. I'm doing it because of my testimony. How many times did Moses go before God and say, God, you cannot do this because your name will suffer. God, you can't destroy the people because if you did, then people will say that you brought them out of Egypt but couldn't deliver them into the land that you said. God, you can't do this because you have promised and you can't destroy them. Here God's saying it on his own. I am going to defend my city and Sennacherib is going back home the way he came. Verse 36 says, And then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote of the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, there were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt in Nineveh. Loses 185,000 men and he goes home. Uh, he probably really didn't understand it. He didn't really see what was going on. God spared him. But you turn around and everywhere you look are dead bodies. No battle. He either thought, boy, these, the, these uh, Israelites are a little stronger than I thought they were. They came out in the middle of the night and killed all my people without me knowing it. Or he really understood that this was a supernatural event. I believe he understood it was a supernatural event. There was no noise all night when the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 people. And that's one angel. It says, the angel of the Lord, which would really represent Jesus. He is the angel of the Lord. So Jesus, in an incarnate form, came and killed 185 Assyrians that were attacking his, his city. That's a lot of people dead. And Sennacherib is let go. And this very section is repeated in 2 Kings 19, 35-37, and in 2 Chronicles 32, 21 following. Second uh, Kings 19, 35 through 31, and Second Chronicles 19, 21 through 23. This story is repeated in both places. I think God wants us to understand, I'm able to deliver my people. To repeat it three times in each of the historical books, I think is very significant. Because not every piece of history is recorded that many times. So God is saying, I did it. I'm victorious. By the way, people, just remember. God keeps telling us, remember. Remember what I have done. Now, Hezekiah and the people are going to be able to look back and say, remember the day that God killed 185,000 enemies that circled our city? Remember the day that we crossed the Red Sea and the entire Egyptian army was destroyed? Remember the day when God sent 10 plagues on Israel and destroyed their entire economy? Remember the day when we crossed into the Promised Land and the, Red sea, and the Jordan River was parted and we were able to cross on dry land in the, in the middle of the flood? Remember, remember the 40 years of wilderness walking when we were fed every day by manna and by quail in the evening? Remember, remember. Remember, we need to remember what God has done for us. Because we as human beings forget so easy. We tend to forget. 
it, we end up having this idea of, God, what have you done for me lately? God, I know you've done this, that, and the other thing, but God, what have you done for me today? What have you done for me today? And we need to be careful of that. We need to be very careful of that attitude. It's not, God, what have you done for me lately? Because we didn't deserve it then either. But it's by, God, by your grace, you deliver me when I need to be delivered. God, by your grace, you protect me. By your grace, you keep me. By your grace, I get up in the next, each morning and have air to breathe and strengthen my legs to get out of bed. It's his grace that allows all of that. And we need to always keep this in memory. God's great grace. And just when we think we understand his grace, he'll give us greater grace. And then when we think we understand that, he'll give us even greater grace and help us to understand how wonderful he is. And then in verse 38, And it came to pass that as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch his god, that Adriamlech and Shemrezer his sons smote him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Armenia, and Esarhaddon his son reigned in his stead. So he is lacks a victory that he should have had by everybody's standards. He had 185,000 men surrounding Jerusalem. He should have won that battle. He is sent back with his tail between his legs and his sons decide that he's not worth living and kill him as he's worshiping his God. And then they run for their lives. And one of their other brothers gets to, to reign. Uh, and this happens a lot. This happens a lot when God and the world turns upon each other in a heartbeat, which is why we as Christians have to be careful. Unfortunately, Christians have this, this desire and understanding that we attack our own weakened people, and that's not the way it should be in the church. We should be loving one another. When, our, when somebody in the, is a Christian falls, we need to be ready to give mercy and grace to that person and lift them up and edify them and encourage them not eat them up like the world does. The world destroys the wounded. We as Christians should love one another, build one another up, and even love and build up our enemies because that's what God says we're to do. That's what makes us different. Not that we destroy. And churches are supposed to be hospitals for sinners, not sanctuaries for saints. Because we're not sanctuaries for saints. We are sinners and we need each other. We need to be built up. We need to be edified. And we all need grace, whether we realize it or not. We need God's grace. We need to be edified, and we need to be loved. Because if it's not for that, we will fall. We will fall if we're not following God with everything that he gives us to follow him. And that's how we stand out. They will know, Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples by your love, one for another, and then he also says you're to love your enemy. So that definitely turns, takes us away from the enemy. The world does not, they don't even love each other in most cases. They don't really love their family. If it first comes to shove, it's me first, even with family members in most cases. Now, sometimes familiar love can, can overtake your me first attitude, but not always and not even most of the time. But it definitely is me first when it comes to somebody you don't like or who's been mean to you or that you're competing with to get a job, it's always me first. And in Christianity, God says, love your enemy. All right, so they're, they're going to cheat to get the job. Love them. Be kind to them. It'll catch up with them. They're going to get the consequences for what they're doing in the long run. We just love other people, and we're kind. We're not bitter. 
Now, I wish that was true all the time, <laughs> but that is what we aspire to. When God comes and dwells in us and his love shows us that we're loved, and a lot of that comes to really understanding I don't deserve anything from God. It is all his grace and his mercy that I have anything. And because of who he is, I can love others. And when we truly see ourselves as somebody deserving of grace and not earning it ourselves, it makes it easy to love others. Until that time, if I think I deserve whatever I get, I'm not willing to love others because hey, I drug myself up by my bootstraps. Why aren't you, you know, I got over this sin. How come you can't? And as long as I think that it's me doing it, I'm not going to have any mercy and grace on other people. I'm going to look at them, well, you know, I did it. What's wrong with you? This is why it's important for us to understand our victory comes through Christ. Without him crucifying my flesh, I have no victory. I may discipline my flesh, you know, I might be in an AA with, with disciplining my flesh and keeping away from drugs and alcohol or fornication or whatever my, whatever my sin of choice is. But if it's me with a whip and chain and worried about what other people are, going, are thinking about me and the fact that I may have to talk to my sponsor if I, if I do something wrong and I've got that all going on and keeping it under whip and chain, it doesn't work. It will eventually come back with a vengeance. But when I am following Christ, I'm putting it under the blood of Christ. He's given me victory. He's crucifying my flesh. I can be free and free indeed because God crucifies that desire. And this is where it comes. When I turn to Christ, I say, God, I'm a sinner. I deserve punishment. God, I want you to crucify this area of my life. He comes in and he makes us free. He doesn't just put it under, he doesn't put it in a cage and, and hold it there. He kills it. He makes me free. He gives me a new heart that doesn't desire it and doesn't want it. Does that, it doesn't happen instantly. In most cases, it takes time. But I do believe that when you get saved, at least one thing in your life gets crucified instantly so that you know I'm a changed person. For me, it was my temper. God took my temper away from me and destroyed it. Doesn't matter, I mean I never get upset or angry, but I don't get angry and upset the way I used to. For some people, it may be their alcohol or their drug addiction or their anger or their sexual activities or their pride or love of money or whatever it might be, and God just takes it away and says, I'm going to show you at least one place where you are a new creation and a new, never-before-seen person, and you're not going to struggle in that area because I have made you new. I have crucified it. And it's all God that does it. And true victory comes from God. And it comes from us saying, God, I can't do this. I surrender. And this is the most important thing. We sing a song, I surrender all. But most of us don't surrender all. And we fight God about surrendering. And I've even had so many people ask me, how do I surrender? You do it. You just let go and surrender and every time I finally surrender, I go kicking myself and saying, why did it take me so long to surrender? It was so easy. I just did it. And yet I fight tooth and nail to surrender. And so many people that I meet and talk to are fighting tooth and nail to surrender because the flesh wants to be in charge. The flesh does not want to be crucified. The flesh does not want to submit to God. 
And when we get to that place where I am sick and tired enough to surrender, and I surrender and God gives me victory, I look around and go, wow, what a wonderful place. I surrendered and look what God has done. I am at peace. I'm no longer fighting this. And I'm able to get by without fighting every moment of the day. All because of surrender. And the problem is God will keep putting us into situations that we're going to fail. And 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 we're going to fail. Until we finally say, God, I'm sick of this. I want to give up. And God says, about time. (laughs) About time that you've given up. Now let's give you the victory. I'm going to crucify this. And I'm going to show you victory. And then he shows us another area. And we fail, and we fail, and we fail, and we fail, until we finally get sick of it and say, God, I surrender. Hopefully, we start getting it through our head that we should be surrendering quicker, a little faster. Hopefully, each time God works in our life, our surrender comes a little faster. I'm not fighting with God for a decade. I'm not fighting with God for three years. I'm not fighting with God for months. I'm not fighting with God for weeks. Hopefully, I get, maybe I'll get to the point where Okay, God, you said it. I want to do it. I haven't got there yet. I've gotten around a couple of items. But most of the time, I still fight with God for, for a while. Not years like it used to be. Mostly. <laughs> I hope I don't ever go a year again without surrendering because I know better. And I have no excuse to fight with God for years because I've had enough things surrendered to him to absolutely know, just surrender. Just surrender. And all of us, I hope, are getting better and better at surrendering to God and saying, God, I don't want to fight. I don't want this to be my battle. You have told me you're going to give me victory. I just give it to you. I'm going to hide inside of you. I'm going to let you be the one that takes the brunt of all this. You're going to be the one that takes the criticisms for this. You're going to take the temptations and block them from me and make me a new creation that has victory. That has victory. There's certain areas in my life that I'm not worrying about slipping and falling unless I get too arrogant about it. I still put a guard there, but I'm not worried about certain areas of my life saying, I'm going to, this is an area I'm going to fall in. One of them is a church attendance. I'm going to be in church. Not because it's going to make God happy with me, but just because I want to be around God's people. I want to hear testimonies. I want to hear worship. I want to be with God's people and feel the presence of God. Before I was a pastor, I wanted to, hear to, I wanted to come to, te- uh, to be taught. Now I get to teach. But my goal is to be in his presence. Because I love being in God's, with God's people. Always have. And this is an area where if we're not careful, we can say, okay, don't need it. God, I'm strong enough. I don't, I don't need to be around your people. Or worse yet, God, I'm so bad I don't want to be around your people because they're going to condemn me and make me feel bad because I'm going to think they're so good. And that's the reason we don't want to be around church sometimes when we've fallen into sin. God, somebody's going to judge me. Somebody's going to make me feel, or God, I'm just going to feel bad because I'm with all those perfect people. Because when we're in sin, we forget that they're not perfect people. We just get convicted because they're trying to follow God and we were trying to follow God and we're all of a sudden fallen and Satan is attacking us. And not come to, not be with God's people and be built up and edified and hear the word of God and be walking with God. He wants us wallowing around in our self-pity. Because if we're wallowing around in our self-pity, we're not doing anything for God. And if we're not going to be with God's people and being built up and edified and encouraged to go out and walk with God, 
We're just doing nothing, and that's where Satan wants us. He wants us to do nothing. He hates it when we get strong with God and say, God, I know you love me. God, I know you've forgiven me. I really don't even care what the rest of the body says. If they don't want to accept me and believe in me, you do. But you know what? There's going to be somebody, there's going to be some remnant in the body that's going to encourage you. And don't worry about the ones that get critical and attack you for your, for your falling down because they're not worth listening to anyway because they're either of the world or acting like the world. Listen to the people who are building you up and edifying you. Now that doesn't mean that you're not going to get criticism even from those who are building you up. Because if somebody really loves you and they see you going in the wrong direction, in love and with men's prayer, they may come to you and say, I'm really concerned about what I'm seeing and the direction I'm seeing you go in. I'm praying for you. Or if you need help, call me and I'll be able to help. I'll, I'll, I'll meet with you. I'll talk with you. I'll pray with you over the phone, whatever, whatever it may be. I want to help you. I don't want to see you fail. I don't want to see you wallowing around in sin. Just be aware that they're of the world. There are people, there's a remnant, in any Bible-believing church, there is a remnant that believes God's word and is going to edify and build up. Will they always be perfect? No, but there are those who are listening to God and they're going to speak the words that are of encouragement and they're going to love you. And it really doesn't matter what anybody who's not of that remnant says or believes. Sometimes God just brings, if, if, there's nobody, if there's nobody in your life at that moment that's going to build you up, he'll bring another Christian in from someplace else because they're part of the body. This is the thing about it. The closer we walk with God, the more sensitive we are to the Spirit's moving and the more sensitive we are to seeing the Spirit move in ways that we would have totally ignored before. The more we draw close to God, the more we see God. All right? And I've shared with this so many times. I would go to meetings, and I'm going, God, I don't want to be hanging out with these guys that are going to be drunk in a couple hours because of how much they're drinking. I need to find some Christians. And inevitably, within three or four minutes, five minutes, 15 minutes at the most, I'd be with two or three other Christians, and we'd be talking about the Bible or God or church or what God is doing because God, I was looking for God. And God is every place when we open our eyes and look for him. This is what Blackaby said, you know, look around for what God's doing and join him. All we're going to do is open our eyes. God, how are you moving? What are you doing? And if we're looking for him, we'll see it. If we're not looking for it, it could be standing right in front of our face, jumping up and down and, and screaming at us, and we don't see it. When we are walking with him, it's amazing how things start to work and how things work out and, and you know, coincidence the world would call it. No, God works. And it's an amazing thing to watch him work and be sensitive to him working. All right, let's close in prayer so we won't wait past our time. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for the opportunities you give us to serve you. Lord, help us to always look to you for our provision and know that you are going to provide victory. If there's anybody listening to this that doesn't know you, Lord, we ask that they will commit their life to you. They will recognize they're a sinner and ask you to come into their heart. And they will talk to some Christians about how to walk with you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.